Today we have with us Aaron Sabarium. Aaron is a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. Um, he before that was at the American Interest, and before that he was a student at Yale. Um, Aaron has been doing some of the most cutting edge reporting on issues of critical social justice in various institutions. And I'm really happy, Aaron, to have you on to discuss some of your recent reporting and to go deep on a few other issues as well. So thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Okay, so let me start out with a recent article that you did about the American Bar Association insisting that law schools, in order to get accreditation, must start to um, use diversity, equity, and inclusion programs that they've pre-approved. Tell us a little bit about what you found there. Well, I mean, I, I almost hesitate to say that I, I found it uh, because that implies that it was hidden and I was digging. But in fact, it was all right out in the open if you just looked on their website. Um, uh, essentially, they are mulling a plan that would uh, both require law schools to do anti-racism training, including a mandatory ethics course in which students are taught that they have an obligation to rectify racism in the law. So the premise of the course is that racism is woven into the law. Um, and the other thing it would do is it would force schools to diversify their student bodies um, and faculty it doesn't give any kind of concrete definition of what satisfactory diversity would mean, but the, the way it's worded implies that however diverse any given law school is, it's not enough and it needs to do more to quote, take effective actions to diversify its student body. And uh, that's important because the proposal explicitly uh, includes a clause saying uh, that colorblind civil rights laws that prevent the consideration of race or ethnicity or gender in admissions will not be considered a justification for not complying with the diversity requirement. Um, and so uh, a number of legal scholars, including 10 very well-regarded professors at Yale Law School, submitted a comment saying, look, as written, this guidance could require schools to violate federal law in the pursuit of diversity and implement quotas or do what Harvard's done where they kind of implement soft quotas without technically implementing official quotas uh, in order to get their diversity numbers right. So they, the group certifying law schools, basically every law school in the country is considering issuing guidance that could force all of those law schools to violate federal law uh, in pursuit of diversity. Right. It's not just guidance, right? It, they would it would be mandatory for them to get their accreditation. Correct. Correct. Yes. That's incredible. Um, to what degree have you seen an outcry? I know we had those ten Yale law professors, but have you heard from others? Is there evidence that this is sort of catching on among legal scholars? Well, so Brian Leiter at the University of Chicago and some others also submitted briefs that were fairly critical of this uh, proposed accreditation rubric. Um, and I talked to another professor at Yale Law School who's quoted in the piece who did not sign the original comment, but I think was very sympathetic to, you know, what it said. So 
I, I get the sense that a lot of professors are upset about this, and there seems to certainly have been more organized pushback um, in the legal field to uh, what some of the woke credentialing institutions want to do than there has been, say, in the medical field, where it really seems to have just gone really far with no pushback. Um, but, you know, it remains to be seen, like they haven't finalized the these accreditation standards yet, but they could. Um, they're getting closer to doing that. Uh, and I mean, what they ultimately decide to do, I think will be a good barometer of just where the march through the institutions is at the moment. Um, if it's voted down, I think that's positive and will suggest that there is more pushback among a wide swath of law professors. Um, if it's not voted down, uh, that tells us that things are pretty far along um, and that will not be mm -hmm. good. Um, who gets to vote? I'm not, I think there's like a committee on the American Bar Association. It's like, so there's a, something called the Standards Committee, which kind of is in the process of revising the recommendations. And then there's like a council. I, I don't know exactly who is on that, but I think it's a, you know, a relatively small group of bureaucrats who will ultimately make the final say. And I think there may be like a process where there needs to be a final vote that's more people. So I'm, I'm not exactly sure how many voices there would need to be. And I imagine that if there's a wide enough outcry, they won't go through with this. But it's certainly, I don't think it's like a democratic vote of all law professors in the country. That's definitely not how it works. Right. So you've also done some work looking at the private school accreditation process, K through 12. Yes. Uh, tell us what you saw there. Yeah. So uh, one of the most important uh, kind of supra accreditation bodies uh, in the private school world is the National Association for Independent Schools. I call it a supra accreditation body because it technically doesn't set accreditation standards itself. It sets standards that it expects regional accreditors to enforce, and those regional accreditors have to enforce the standards to be part of this kind of umbrella group. Um, but, you know, because of that dynamic, it is effectively setting accreditation standards for uh, over 1600 member private schools. Um, and those accreditation standards include diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice, um, all very vague terms that you could imagine being interpreted in a relatively minimalist, non-offensive way. But when you look at the diversity consultants who are in bed with the National Association for Independent Schools, the kinds of programming that the National Association for Independent Schools sponsors, it's very clear that the operative meaning of diversity, equity, and inclusion is wokeism and Kendiism. Um, so effectively, you know, there are true believers, I'm sure, at all most private schools, but there's also this kind of coercive, centralized dynamic that forces all the private schools to hire DEI staff in order to show that they're complying with these accreditation standards. Because every time they're up for reaccreditation, what invariably happens is the visiting team that's doing the accreditation report says, oh, you know, you've made some good progress on DEI, but you could be doing even more to become a, you know, a regional leader in diversity and equity. And of course, how do you show that you're a regional leader? Well, you hire more DEI officers who then promote 
this kind of sense of, you know, racial grievance and victimhood. So then, of course, the next time your school is up for accreditation, um, students and faculty will have been trained in this, uh, you know, DEI worldview that sees racism everywhere. So they'll say, well, wow, you know, there's a lot of racism at our school. We must need even more diversity consultants. And so they hire another round of diversity consultants. Um, it's kind of a self-perpetuating racket. Right, right. And it, it hit me that it could go both directions. It, uh, schools that really want to do this but have opposition among their trustees, for example, might want to use this as cover for uh, their desire to implement these plans. And, and then it can also be a source of pressure. Have you seen evidence that that some schools are just looking to use this as cover and, and um, yeah, I, I think, I think that's definitely happening at some places, especially the schools that have just historically been more progressive. I, I get the sense that, you know, they'd probably do this anyway. And it just provides a kind of another, it's another layer of official justification, this kind of, you know, ostensibly neutral, certifying institution they can point to as a source of legitimacy and say, well, look, I mean, this legitimating body says that we should be doing this. So we're just in line with quote unquote best practices. Um, you know, it adds another layer of legitimacy. And I think the other thing it does is it obfuscates the essentially ideological character of diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? It's seen as just a best practice, a kind of technocratic thing that all schools should adopt rather than a very comprehensive ideology that's being uh, foisted on schools and has, you know, deep kind of moral and political implications. Hmm. Have you looked at other institutions in your reporting in, in recent months? Yeah. So, so I've, on the accreditation, I've mostly looked at private schools and law schools, but I, you know, plan to do more on, on other things. And I, I, one thing I haven't looked into as much, but I think is a real story is schools of education and requirements, just certification requirements for say public school teachers. Um, you know, th that's a whole other sort of system of coercive power that I think explains some of the critical race theory and, Public schools, one thing I've also been focused on is woke medicine and the bureaucratic institutions that uh, peddle that. I mean, you see it in the CDC, which just recently released these crazy like guidelines for how to use inclusive language um, in medicine. And you go and like look at who, who the CDC is citing, and it's a kind of loose confederation of health NGOs that are all really woke. Um, mm -hmm. So, and those NGOs are really, in terms of their personnel and their internal operations and their worldview are really kind of indistinguishable from just woke activist groups or from even like the American Medical Association, the, the medical credentialing bodies have kind of merged with the activist credentialing bodies to the point that you can make a real case that in, in medicine, wokeism and activism just are, are themselves now a medical credential. Um, mm. So that's the other thing. I mean, you see these sort of professional organizations in medicine really pushing the woke stuff. And that I think is another 
factor behind some of the crazier public health health pronouncements we've seen during COVID about how racism is the real public health threat, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Katie Herzog uh, has obviously done some interesting reporting on that. And um, that is really disturbing. It, you know, Peter Bogosian uses that talks about this at, at the academic level. He calls it idea laundering. And, and this almost seems like certification laundering. Like there's yes, a there's yes. sort of a, a system you're putting in place that is uh, self-perpetuating where people cite another group who cites another group. And it's really a community of people citing each other to gain legitimacy and, and primacy in these fields. Right, and, right. Well, and so, and so here's an example, right? So the CDC uses person-centered language in this inclusive, inclusive communications guide. They say you should, you know, instead of calling someone a diabetic or a smoker, you should say person who is diabetic or person who smokes. And that person-centered language, that wasn't the CDC that pioneered it. It was this group of kind of activist groups and NGOs. And that's, that's been going on for a while. The CDC is just adopting it. But of course, once the CDC adopts it, then those same NGOs can say, well, see, the CDC, the government bureaucracy uses the person-centered language. So we're just uh, following what the government bureaucracy says. So there's kind of this, yeah, as you say, this circular cycle in which, um, you know, certifying groups kind of come in and set the tone for government bureaucracies, which in turn add extra justification to the certifying and professional groups, which then feed back into the government bureaucracies. So it's a self-perpetuating, self-legitimizing feedback loop. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, I know that schools of education have been a problem for a long time. Lyle Asher has written extensively about this, um, but I, I, I had not thought about it from a certification end. I mean, it's easy to see how a school of education could, uh, you know, adopt a certain curriculum around diversity, instruct everybody in it, instruct uh, college administrators who then um, force it at the university level. But to think that there might also be a certification angle here too, it could mean that they even have more coercive power than just uh, teaching a certain style or set of beliefs. Right. And, And I think it's important to see that it's not always experienced as coercion precisely because it's woven into the certification process. So yes, it's coercive in in the, in an objective sense, because you have to do it to remain certified. And there are, you know, reputational and economic costs to losing that certification, but because it's framed as certification, it kind of uh, follows this institutional sociological logic where it's not even seen as a coercive outside imposition. It's just the thing everyone does, a best practice. Well, of course you do that. So it's the cert, but when, when certification and wokeness merge, it has the effect of depoliticizing the essentially political character and doctrine that is wokeism. And that makes wokeism very hard to fight in the institutions. Hmm. So how did you end up in this sort of anti-woke beat? Uh, I mean, I would say that the anti-woke stuff has been, I mean, I've been pretty consistently worried about it since I was in college. Uh, I, I was the opinion editor of the Yale Daily News when the Christakis stuff was going on. Um, 
the Halloween gate, whatever. And uh, (laughs) that exposed me to a lot of the the excesses of woke ideology in its then nascent form. And and it's since, you know, kind of, I think, crystallized and emerged as just the controlling ideology of a lot of our institutions. Um, And having seen it up close, you know, I'm I'm not a fan. I think it's destructive um, in all sorts of ways. Uh, And I think the people who said it's just a few college kids, they'll grow out of it, have been spectacularly proven wrong. No, they haven't grown out of it. They've grown into uh, every major elite institution in society. So now, um, you know, the American Bar Association is populated by people who graduated college when a lot of the kind of antecedents of critical race theory or sort of the antecedents of modern wokeness were, were gaining steam and, and they, you know, picked it up and now they're in the institutions and thus the institutions now um, have adopted uh, a de facto critical race theoretic perspective on every issue. Um, So, you know, yeah, it's, it's everywhere. It's not a marginal thing. Um, The, the crazy reductio ad absurdums people use to uh, argue against wokeness, they may be, polemically or rhetorically effective, but they don't actually convince people. I mean, because everybody you know, knows it's around them. They see it. Right. They feel and, it. Right. And, and, and I mean, it doesn't, you know, it's not like, it's not like you can go to some woke administrator precisely because it's been institutionalized. So it's not even seen as a political thing. You can't go and say, well, actually this logic is, this is silly because X, Y, and Z, you know, have you thought about the Asians at Harvard? Doesn't your anti-racist theory imply that that's racist too, blah, blah, blah. I mean, they just don't, they don't even see it as a legitimate question to ask. And so it's not effective to debate this stuff. Um, you have no. to just deinstitutionalize it. Um, right. And that's really the problem. Yeah. Challenging. Or start new institutions is very yes. well. just article. Yes. Ar- yes. Argued. Exactly. Um, you, so you covered the Christakis affair. Did you opine against the students in the Christakis affair, did you side with the Christakis? more, more or less? So, so when I was the opinion editor that year, that's when it was going on. I couldn't actually write my own opinions because they didn't let the editors actually do any writing. That's just how the Yale Daily News worked. Um, mm-hmm. So I had to instead just be the gatekeeper who had to field all the articles denouncing the guy, but also was able to commission some articles defending him, which was the most I could do in my capacity, really, as the Yale Daily News opinion editor. I mean, the paper itself was pretty woke. Um, And so in terms of our institutional stance we took, both in our editorials and our news coverage, it was, I mean, extremely sympathetic to the protesters. I was not happy about that, but was outvoted. And it was pretty clear that there was no way I was going to win that argument. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, after, after being somewhat limited in what I could do, you know, the following year, I was back as a columnist. I was no longer an editor because it turns over after every year. Um, I had done the job a little younger than most people do it. Most people do it when they're juniors. I was only a sophomore. So I had two years after I was done being an editor to just opine on whatever I wanted. Um, and I think once I was liberated to do that, it became pretty clear to campus in case it wasn't already that I did not have much sympathy for the protesters, uh, to put it mm-hmm. did that Did that get you in hot water with people? Did people protest you? Was yeah. There- I mean, I mean, initially like, I, yeah, they did. And initially, um, I was sort of taken aback by it and then having, 
like before I before I became the editor, I wrote a few columns that people got mad at um, that weren't about Christakis so much as other things. But but um, initially that disquieted me and it was not fun to be attacked on social media. And then I sort of realized over the course of the Christakis affair, actually, that, you know, these kids are just insane and you shouldn't really regard anything they say as normative like it's not okay so if someone says that you're stupid and or racist because you believe in free speech well that's third grade logic and you shouldn't care what third graders think um that kind of became my attitude so i did take a lot of heat for it once i started more consistently just writing about how the campus wokeism was terrible um but a lot of people privately agreed with me and a lot of my friends agreed with me, so I never felt socially isolated. Um, and the people who really hated my guts, I just frankly learned to not care what they think. And 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 that that was, I think, good training to just realize, you know, these people are insane, and you shouldn't uh, you shouldn't really worry about what they say unless they have abs- unless they wield concrete power over you. Um, you know, you should just ignore the mob. That that would mm-hmm. be my advice to people in these situations. Yeah. So you went to work for a newspaper with a conservative bent. Would you have liked to work for one of the more uh, you know mainstream papers? Would that have been possible? Would it have been an impediment to you in either your reporting or in their hiring you because of your? Oh boy. Ideal- yeah. uh, Got to be careful with what I say here. <laughs> uh, let me you put it this way. Death. Well, let me, no. So let me put it this way. I I started at the American interest, which was more of a kind of centrist magazine. I mean, it was vaguely center, right. But I think in the Trump years to even call it center, right. was kind of inaccurate. It was, it was not really neatly on the left or the right. Um, I, which I, which I was attracted to because I really did not fit in very well with either the left or the right. I, I think increasingly if you, believe that wokeness is a real story that deserves to be chronicled and chronicled with a critical eye that is going to de facto place you on the right, given the topography Mm -hmm. of American politics. And so since I do think wokeness is an important story and one that ought to be covered with a critical eye, that just means right-wing media is a better fit for me. As to my ideological commitments, you know, in some ways I've become more conservative and I'm on, on certain issues, like for example, crime, I'd say I'm more right wing, you know, I think the police are generally good and, you know, black lives matter complaints about police brutality. while not totally unfounded are wildly overstated and, you know, far more people die of violent crime than in police shootings. And I think that should, be reflected in our policy priorities and media coverage, for example. Um, but you know, I'm not like, I, yeah, I, I would. I don't know how committed I am to sort of the broader conservative worldview. Um, I'm certainly, though, I'm not a fan of say like hookup culture or, or you know really radical gender stuff for like five year olds. I'm also not really a social conservative. I'm fine with gay marriage, abortion, whatever. And, and on economics, I'm, you know, like I, some mar- free market ideas make sense. Others really don't. I, I can kind of go either way. Um, as to working at a more mainstream, so to speak, publication, 
you know, for a while, yeah, I, I really looked up to people like Ross Douthat, who, who managed to write these very nuanced, more sort of right-leaning things for the New York Times that nonetheless, I thought, you know, engaged with the liberal audience without necessarily compromising, you know, fidelity to their, their principles. I, I, I admire that kind of writing and, and think that it would be great if there were more of it, but I mean, just the reality is that given what's going on in these institutions, I, I, A, yeah, I don't think that the New York Times or the Atlantic would hire me. And frankly, I wouldn't want to take a job there, even if they offered one, because I've heard about what those institutions are like. And, you know, they sound horrible. You mentioned Barry Weiss. I mean, she was getting like guillotine emojis in the Slack. Like, I don't want to deal with that. Um, and and I and I wouldn't want to go someplace that I think would be inclined to censor me for my views. And I suspect that the New York Times, given how they react to that Tom Cotton op-ed, would be inclined to censor me for my views, which, while not identical with Tom Cotton's by any stretch, you know, on certain issues, like I I I think Tom, you know, that op-ed wasn't crazy. It wasn't obviously true, but it wasn't crazy. And, sure. and apparently even regarding it as a legitimate point of view made you a racist. So I don't, yeah, I don't want to work with colleagues like that. Um, right. And, and so I would they also did, they say- did hire, They did hire John McWhorter. They did, yeah. And that's, and I mean, I, I do think in the past couple of months, they've been starting to maybe realize that they need a little more pushback on this stuff. I, and I think the cynical part of me believes that's because- they've they've seen the polling and realized that there really is some grassroots pushback um and that they just it, it will be hard for them to maintain relevancy you know if they go maybe too far away from just the middle of american opinion um but you know the other thing i would say you, you use the term mainstream and yes in in certain respects they're mainstream i mean they're regarded as legitimate sources of authority and opinion by the Biden administration and by large swaths of the kind of, you know, nonprofit space. And that that matters. It confers a kind of power, even if what The New York Times says is not what most of the country believes it. You know, the people who count will believe The New York Times. Right. That that's a problem. But, yeah, you know, to call it mainstream, it's like, well, it, Yes, it's mainstream in the sense that a lot of institutions take it seriously, but I'm not sure how many normal people regard it as a kind of normative news source anymore. Certainly, maybe people on the left do, but I don't think people on the right do, and I'm not even sure increasingly that people in the middle do if they're really worried about the woke stuff, because the woke stuff is just so omnipresent in everything the New York Times covers that, like, you know, from a descriptive standpoint, the term mainstream is problematic since it's it's way out of step with the mainstream of American public opinion. Mm -hmm. And from a normative perspective, it's problematic because like mainstream should imply some degree of rationality or plausibility. And mm -hmm. there are some issues where the New York Times just its coverage it just proceeds from a set of premises that are not plausible or rational. And, and, you know, I, I'm not even talking about true, like we can debate whether something's true, people can have reasonable disagreements, but, you know, the idea that like Emmett Till, for example, is an important story for understanding 
as important or more important than countless other stories for understanding modern American race relations, you know, that's an insane premise. Like that, that one incident is more important than all of the events, the, the riots that happened last summer, et cetera. Um, and look, the, the New York Times has published an insane number of articles on Emmett Till. And I'm not against talking about it, like a re historical retrospective once in a while, fine. But they single out that incident, which really bears no resemblance to current American realities as if it's this like metaphor for our entire racial history. And I mean, it may well be a metaphor for a lot of it, but it is just not, it does not capture modern day racial realities in the United States at all. And I mean, I, 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 I do not want to even see the premise that it's legitimate, that it, that the amount of coverage that one story gets is like at all appropriate or reasonable, or that a rational person would think this is an appropriate balance of coverage. It's obviously not when you look at just what's going on in the United States right now. Right. So there's been an interesting debate about the New York Times and other quote unquote mainstream uh, outlets. Um, I heard Jonathan Rausch, who is a critic of the New York Times, and he came out with his more recent book, Constitutional Knowledge, say um, that these what he'll call reality based institutions like the New York Times, while they've gone they've gone woke and it's it's obviously affected in a bad way their coverage. He thinks like you know look ten to one they still get it right. They're still the best of the best. They still help us understand reality and you know we've got to fight back against wokeism and then you hear andrew sullivan and i think Rasha monk basically say i'm sorry i don't agree with you we, this is too pervasive and it affects their coverage in a much more uh pervasive way than you're than you're yeah. acknowledging are, are you with the uh are you with uh, andrew sullivan or or jonathan rash I'm, I'm much more with andrew sullivan i, I mean i i the thing is in a narrow sense, Jonathan Rauch is not wrong. And I should preface this by saying I haven't read his book, so it's possible he addresses what I'm going to say here. So I, if he, by some chance, listens to this, you know, just take that. At least keep that in mind, Jonathan. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I will read the book eventually, and you may well address all these. It's really good. But yeah, yeah I, I mean, no, I mean, he's a smart guy. I like him. Um, but but the reason I, I shy away from that kind of reality-based narrative of, of Rauch is that Yes, on many stories, the majority of facts that the New York Times prints are true. The vast majority of what it prints is true. And the vast majority of what public health experts have said during COVID is true, or at least consistent with what the science is at that point. But the things that the public health officials got wrong at crucial junctures were really important things to get wrong. Like, yes, you know, it they they later realized oh this is a serious disease and the media later realized oh this is a serious disease but for a good two months it was it was pretty it was a mainstream view like the mainstream liberal view was this is just the flu stop panicking um and that was a catastrophically false belief that i think really handicapped the country's preparedness. People say it was the public health administration's fault and Trump's fault, and that there's some truth to that, certainly. But, you know, 
I was getting worried about it in February because I was reading these reports on Twitter, like from questionable sources, but like these reports, like China is welding people in their apartments. It's like, well, this sounds pretty serious, guys. And then you see the New York Times and Slate and Vox as late as March saying, this is probably just the flu. Wash your hands. I mean, that's a really big thing to get wrong. And it's not something that there was no way to get right if you were reading the tea leaves, because there were people who got it right. And so, you know, to bring it back to the New York Times, it's like, yeah, much of what they print is true, but the things that are either false or not put in the right context are often really, really important. And the consequences of decontextualizing them or misrepresenting them can be really, really grave. So look, like to quote the New York Times, I mean, there was this story recently about how only less than 30% of black New Yorkers are vaccinated. And one thing that some of the people quoted in the story said, this is like their words, not mine, is that they, you know, had this distrust of the government and were more worried about, seemed more worried about police shootings than about COVID. And I mean, you could see why someone reading the New York Times might think that police shootings were as big a threat or even a bigger threat to black life than COVID. But that is not only not true, it's like orders of magnitude wrong. I mean, I mean, it, it isn't even close to truth. It's just flat out false. And so if the New York Times' selective presentation of facts leads, you know, even just some African-Americans to think we can't trust the government because the state is like engaged in a systematic campaign of brutality against us, then they don't get vaccinated against COVID and then they start dying when Delta rips through the population, I mean, that is an example of quote unquote reality-based coverage killing people. And, you know, I don't mean to be too harsh on the New York Times, but like, you know, come on, like, yes, it's, it's, that's one error, but it's, it's a huge error that is not without its consequences. So yeah, like, I, I don't think saying the New York Times is factually correct 99 times out of 100 really refutes the criticism that people like Sullivan are making, which is that just the narrative is so out of whack that it leads to really troubling epistemic distortions with like human consequences. Hmm. So I want to turn to a minute to uh, being Jewish. Uh, you're Jewish. Yes. <laughs> yes, um, I'm Jewish. This is a Jewish podcast. Um, so I heard you on Clubhouse, I think it was probably the first time I was exposed to you talking about Jewish debate culture. And as uh, luck would have it, I'm writing about that right now. And I would love your insights into that. I think you might have said something to the effect that, um, you know, we, many of us grew up with sort of a Jewish debate culture in place and that, yeah. you know, then we bring it out in the real world or to sort of among non-Jews and all of a sudden you get the media backlash. Uh, what's your experience with uh, Jewish debate culture? How do you characterize it? How do you think about it? Well, I mean, growing up, I didn't even see it as particularly Jewish, but looking back, just, you know, the way that, say, my dad would talk to me about politics, it was not, it was not being lectured at, it was more of an argument, and it was just normal and expected and encouraged that like, me and my dad would just talk about and debate things. That was just normal. And uh, I think as I 
got older and just met other people's families, I realized that, well, it wasn't, it's not like only Jews do this. Um, I do think it is more common among Jews. Um, and that sort of, you know, Friday night Shabbos banter um, that, that's sort of linked to the deeper Talmudic tradition of scholarship and debate, that really, that is not the norm in a lot of American households. Um, right. And so one argument I've made is that when you hear people say things like debate is a white supremacist construct or, you know, when, you know, oh my God, look at the way that people are mansplaining, blah, blah, blah. Often what's identified as mansplaining or kind of an inappropriately aggressive debate style is really just kind of Jewish argument culture. Um, and, you know, people, I think it can be off-putting to people who haven't been exposed to it before and aren't used to arguing, being seen as a sign of respect and, and not sort of a, you know, microaggression, what have you. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, I don't think that people who make those sorts of woke arguments are anti-Semites per se, or that even making that argument, the argument itself is intrinsically anti-Semitic, but I do think it betrays a kind of ignorance of Jewish and to some extent even Arab culture too. I mean, there's other cultures that have this kind of argument style, but like it, it, it is very, it is very cultural specific. I, I mean, I think if you grew up, for example, in a in a stereotypically waspy family, you are not as likely to be exposed to this. Um, mm -hmm. And so, and, and not every racial or cultural minority group has this to the same degree. Uh, and so I think it can create, it, you know, it, it can, it can cause people to perceive um, that this mismatch can cause people to perceive just authentic Jewish argument culture as, you know, offensive or impolite, or in some cases, even racist and sexist, when in fact, it's nothing of the sort. Um, and you and could, I would, I would know, if, yeah. if you, you could, if you were cynical, argue back that in a sense, they're practicing a kind of whiteness themselves by claiming that the dominant culture of lack of argument uh, should prevail and that we're uh, the Jews who are doing this are engaging some kind of, you know, dominant, they're actually invoking sort of the dominant culture, if anything. Yeah, no, I I know. I mean, I, 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 yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, and, and I would also say, look, uh, you know, I, I, a lot of respect for the wasps. I mean, there were, there were good things about the kind of wasp hegemony that, that we should take seriously, but as someone who was raised Jewish, I've got to say, I'm, I'm kind of glad that uh, Harvard and Yale let uh, Jews into the universities because, yeah, you know, you know, the, the kind of rise of meritocracy has had problems. But in terms of just the kind of argument and debate that, that I enjoy on a personal level and I think is conducive to scholarship and truth seeking and advancement on a societal level, uh, just Jews are good at that. And I think it's been good on balance that Jews have been allowed to shape um, argument culture. And I, and I worry about sort of this, what I would regard as a sort of retrograde attempt to roll that back um, and to under the guise of 
DEI and, and wokeism actually impose what is in many ways a sort of more a kind of older waspy norm that really was exclusionary um, of Jews and also more to the point, I think, was just like bad for discourse and thought. I mean, I think, you know, Jewish argument culture is probably better on balance um, in the academy than most of the alternatives. Great. Well, Aaron, uh, thank you so much for uh, being on the SpeechCast. Um, I hope you'll continue to stick with the wo anti-woke beat. Um, I think you've done some amazing reporting, unique reporting, by the way. And uh, we need somebody to dig into these institutions and understand the dynamics and help bring to light. Um, I don't think a lot of people, including a law professor that I spoke to, until you wrote about it, really understood what was happening at the uh, ABA. And I think uh, you need to continue to do what you're doing because we really need um, to read you. I'm doing my best. I'll keep it up. Awesome.